The following message was recorded as part of the morning worship celebration of Lake Oconee Presbyterian Church in Eatonton, Georgia. More information about the ministries, staff, and worship offerings of Lake Oconee Presbyterian Church can be found on our website at www.lopc-pca.org. The author to the Hebrews writes this, beginning in verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Beloved in Christ, this is the word of God. It is absolutely true, and it is given to us this day in love. Let's pray once more. Our Father, as we now uh, hear your word and seek to understand your word, we pray that you would fill us with your spirit, that you would soften our hearts, that we may delight in your presence that you would sharpen our minds, that we may discern your truth, and that you would shape our wills, that we may desire your ways. We cannot do this by merely um, intellectually remembering things. We need your spirit to press these things deep into our heart so that not only our minds are shaped and our hearts are moved, but our lives are transformed by your holy word. You alone can do this, and we cry out now that you would do it as we make these prayers through the strong name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Please be seated. As someone who is a musician... I have to admit, um, this is a difficult time of year for me. It's difficult because it's busy. I was listening um, the other day to uh, um, a Christmas concert that was being put on by St. Ignatius Church in Upper Manhattan. They were doing a piece of music um, that I knew, and so I was interested in hearing um, their, uh, their interpretation of it. One of the things that was neat about this concert was they were talking with the director both before and afterwards. And he was saying that he directs eight choirs. And I said, when do you sleep? But see, that's not the reason why this year is hard, This time of year is hard for me. This time of year is hard for me because... 
we hear songs on the radio starting around Labor Day that almost seem to lock us in a time warp. It, it, it almost feels like we're stepping back into a, a gentler, sweeter, nicer time. And there are words in these songs that, frankly, we can sing them all day and night. But when is the last time you roasted chestnuts on an open fire? Or how about this? Walking down the streets of Greensboro or Eatonton. Silver bells? It's Christmas time in the city. Or a sleigh ride? Because of all the snow we get in Georgia? Actually, when we do get snow in Georgia, a sleigh ride would probably be more efficient travel now that I think of it. But there are Christmas songs, too, that, that some of their words just don't make sense to us. There are some others that as a kid was just really fun to sing, like, why lies he in such mean estate while ox and ass are feeding? It was the one time of year I could say ass in church and mean a donkey. And it was great fun to me. Still is, actually. There's actually one Christmas hymn, though, that didn't make it into our hymnal because its words are so misunderstood No one quite knows what it is they're singing when they sing it. Let me see if I can give you the first line. God rest ye merry gentlemen, let nothing you dismay. Remember Christ our Savior was born on Christmas Day. Okay, now, what does that mean? We just sort of sing it and go along with it because, you know, it gets better as the song goes on. So I did some reading this week on what the Old English actually meant. So at the time this, the hymn was written, the word rest carried with it the connotation of meaning something to the, to the effect of keep or make. And the word merry, well, it actually didn't mean happy or jolly. It actually meant mighty. Now listen to it again. Translated. God, make you mighty, everyone. Let nothing you dismay. Remember, Christ our Savior was born on Christmas Day to save us all from Satan's power when we had gone astray. Good tidings of comfort and joy. As we think about our text in Hebrews this morning, we're thinking about the question, what is it actually that gives us this reason for tidings of comfort and joy? It's not because we write it on a Christmas card. It's not because we once again hope that everyone's going to figure out how to stop fighting, stop killing, stop disagreeing. There's some deep theological truth rooted in that song. And we see it reflected here in Hebrews 2 this morning. So as we think about Hebrews 2, we want to think about this main point, which I hope to um, to sort of expand and make sense. And that is this. Um, In the incarnation, Christ took on human flesh in order to redeem his people. 
The incarnation, that is Jesus becoming man, causes us to rejoice because since Jesus became a man like us, he could become an advocate for us. Okay? So these two ideas, because Jesus became a man like us, he can therefore be an advocate for us. Now there's important um, things to think about when we ask this question of why is it important to think about Jesus as a, as a human actual human being. Because in the early church, there were some that thought that, um, that it was just well enough to think about Jesus as just sort of a spirit or just sort of a, you know, a super angel or something like that. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But look at verse 14 in our text. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself Likewise, partook of the same things. Now, this is important because Jesus didn't come to just redeem souls. Like when you become a Christian, um, what happens in this body still matters. As I was uh, teaching a class um, on what the church has has historically practiced, um, the, the little phrase I said was, matter matters. This stuff matters. Because this stuff, this world, this matter is being redeemed. People were fallen, and therefore people needed a Savior. They needed a person to become their perfect substitute and their perfect sacrifice. Because here's the thing. God couldn't have just sent Gabriel. God couldn't have just sent Michael. The angels and archangels that we see talked about in the scriptures, like in Daniel, and that we see talked about in the birth narratives of uh, Matthew chapter 1 and Luke chapters 1 and 2. Jesus didn't come to save angels. You see this in Hebrews 2.16. He came to save humans. And this meant that he had to take upon himself actual flesh and actual blood to become a man. Only then could he die and through his death defeat Satan. Look with me again in verse 14. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Now, in the text here, destroy doesn't necessarily mean eviscerate or annihilate, at least not initially. We know that the day is coming when that will happen. But what it means here in the text is that the word destroy means that uh, to render, excuse me, to render inoperative or to make of no effect. So Satan is not destroyed, but he is disarmed. Now, you might say, well, wait a second. We believe that God is sovereign. We believe that God alone is in control of all things. So what does this mean? In what sense did Satan have the power of death? The final authority of death is in the hands of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That is our God. Satan can only do that which he is permitted to do by God. We see this reaffirmed for us in Job chapter 1 and chapter 2. But because Satan is the author of sin, 
And according to Romans 6, sin brings death. It's in this sense that Satan has the power or the the dominion in the realm of death. Paul reminds us in Colossians 1 that Satan's kingdom is one of darkness and death. But the good news here in this passage is that Jesus, the one who is um, the one in whom we place our trust, is the one who has once and and for all delivered us from Satan's kingdom, from Satan's authority, and from this fear of death. I mean, think about it with me for just a minute. What is it that mainly motivates all that is really done in this life? Whether it be the acquisition of possession, whether it be the, um, the desire to, to have more money, to live life to the fullest, to enjoy life while we can, to move to a place of great serenity and peace. Because at the end of the day, functionally, we still battle with the thought that this world is all there is. We still battle with the thought that this life is all we have. We still are operating under a fear of death. But according to the scriptures, death is not just physically dying. According to the scriptures, when the Bible talks about death, the Bible's talking about a forever separation from God. That is what sin has done. And death is the final exclamation point on the results of sin. A full, final, complete separation from God. We're all going to die. There's two things that are certain in this world, as my dad used to say. And he was probably quoting someone else. I think Ben Franklin. Taxes and death. Two things that are certain in this world. This is an important thing for us to hear. That because of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ... He has forever and always rendered null the power of death. Death no longer has to cause Christians to fear. Death no longer has to cause Christians to orient their life decisions as if this period of time that we have on earth is all that we get. It's important for us as a church to hear this too. This has been a hard week. Um, I was not expecting when I went to the hospital on Tuesday with Terry Byers that that night we would be sending out a note to you saying that Jim died. And I wasn't expecting that my dear sweet friend Doris Bombick would die the same night. This is the thing. Death has an eerie way of reminding us of our mortality. Death has a strange way of causing us, at least for a moment, to stop and pause 
and take stock. And this is why this text is such good news for us this day. Because in Christ's victorious resurrection, Jesus has conquered death. You heard that declared at Jim's funeral yesterday. You'll hear that declared at Doris's funeral today. Death has been rendered null. There's one final thing, though, I want to see in this part of Jesus becoming a man like us, because it's important. I had one of those moments, as I often do when I study a text, where I see something on the page and didn't ever realize it was there before. As if someone sort of snuck in, changed the word, snuck out. Look with me for just a second in verse 16. He writes, For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Now, that in the scriptures is theological shorthand for a very powerful truth. Normally, when, say, Paul would be writing an epistle, when he wanted to refer to fallen humanity, he would say the offspring of Adam, right? And so it would have been just as easy if he was communicating the point that we assume he's communicating to say the offspring of Adam. We would have all gotten it. He didn't come to save angels. He came to save people. But that's not what he says, is it? He says here, he came to save the offspring. And help, by the way, is to run to, to save, to to come to the cry of the children of Abraham. Here's why this is important. This verse not only emphasizes the sort of invincibility of divine grace, but it also shows us the purposes of God and salvation and his absolute commitment to save his people. Do you remember back in Genesis, Genesis chapter 12 and Genesis chapter 15 and Genesis chapter 17? Those are sort of the three places where God is outlining his covenant, his promise, his divine oath to Abraham. What were the big things that he stipulated in that divine promise? First of all, he promised Abraham land. He said, yours will be the promised land. There's a second thing that he promised. He said, for Abraham, from you, you will be the father of many nations. There will be descendants. How many? Look at the stars if you can count them. Your descendants will be as many as the stars in the sky. But what was the third promise? From your descendants will come a seed. And he will be the one that will redeem all of your people. The race of Abraham has always been God's chosen people. And so what we see here, Abraham, the father of God's elect people, is the one through whom his seed would come. That is Jesus Christ. 
This expression of speaking of the seed of Abraham is employed in the New Testament in connection with both um, actual uh, genealogical lineage and his spiritual lineage. Look with me for just a minute in Galatians chapter 3. This is an important reference to catch. In Galatians chapter 3 and verse 16, look at what Paul is saying to them as he's talking about their relationship to Abraham. He said, the promises of God were not made to the whole world. What does he say? The promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It it does not say, and to your offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This isn't just some idea of of a spiritual Jesus, but this is a Jesus who came and said in John 1, my sheep hear my voice. I lay down my life for who? For my sheep. So if that's just some, and again, we've, we've just scratched the surface of the reasons why it's important to think about Jesus's humanity. I want to step back in time for a minute and think about the implications for Jesus' humanity. Um, the church, at the close of the apostolic age, that would be the age of the, the apostles, Peter, Paul, John, James, and so on. The church had the scriptures and was trying to then figure out what do the scriptures mean? Now, you know the old saying that um, those who don't learn from the past are what? Condemned to repeat it. And this is why it's helpful to at least have a basic familiarity, a basic understanding of some of the history of the church and some of the original doctrinal controversies that came up in the life of the church. Why? Because these were not just splitting theological hairs on minute points. These were big deals because of their implications. So let's think about the history of the church for a second. There arose a dispute in the early church. The belief that was commonly held by many actually wasn't a biblical belief. So let's frame it up. The dispute began when Athanasius was the chief deacon assistant to the bishop of Alexandria. Helpfully, his name was Alexander. While Alexander was preaching and teaching, he didn't realize that he needed to make a big deal about the fact that Jesus was both fully human and fully divine, that Jesus was the God of all ages past made flesh. It just wasn't part of the dominant train of thought that he was teaching and preaching. Now, another man comes on the scene named Arius. Arius was from Libya. And Arius began to say this. If the father begat the son. If the father caused the son to be made, then he who was begotten had a beginning. 
And from this it follows that there was a time when the Son, Jesus, did not exist. This argument caught on. But Alexander and Athanasius fought against Arius, arguing that it denied the actual Trinity. Christ was not of a similar substance to God, they argued, but the same substance. So let's pause there for just a second. This is why both Mormonism and Jehovah's Witnesses are fanatically dangerous. Because both Mormonism and Jehovah's Witnesses do the same thing. Jesus is not the eternal Godhead. Jesus is not co-eternal with God the Father. Jesus was created. He was a very good man, a very righteous man, but he wasn't God. He was created by God. Now here's the implications of this. Athanasius argued that this was not a little minute point that we could just agree to disagree on. Salvation was at issue here. And this is what he said. And I think it's so important to hear this. Only one who was fully human could atone for human sin. God said there had to be a sacrifice. Somebody had to die. A human had to die. Only one who was fully divine could have the power to save us. Only one who was fully human could atone for sin. Only one who was fully divine could have the power to save from sin. If Jesus wasn't God, then the whole thing is bunk. If Jesus wasn't fully human, the whole thing was bunk. Athanasius said, Those who maintain that there was a time when the Son was not rob God of His Word like plunderers. Look at the grace, friends. Jesus had to be fully human to be our substitute and fully divine in order to be our salvation. He became a man like us so that we can consider this next idea so that he could become an advocate for us. As we look at verses 17 and 18 of Hebrews chapter 2, we get this idea of Jesus having this ongoing work. Once he was off the cross, once he was out of the tomb, once he was raised up in Acts chapter 1 to ascend to be at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, it's not like his job is done. He's still doing work. Well, what is that? Um, if you haven't read Walt, uh, Walter Isaacson's biography of Steve Jobs, it's a fascinating read. A bit depressing at times. A bit um, crass at times, but fascinating. The publisher actually delayed publishing Steve's biography because um, those who were very much on the inside knew that Steve Jobs was, was very close to death. 
And so they waited to publish it so they could at least incorporate some of these uh, facts that were coming to light. Steve's wife, uh, Laureen, filled a role in Steve's ongoing medical care for the pancreatic cancer that he had of being his patient advocate. And this is what Isaacson records in the biography. He said what Lorraine would do is keep spreadsheet upon spreadsheet of spreadsheet. Those of you who are caretakers, by the way, know how to do this. You're trying to keep track of all the medicines. You're trying to keep track of what gets dispensed when. What's been done. Right? Some of you are shaking your head right now. You know this. Those of you who have cared for aging parents know that at the end of the day, you have to be your own personal advocate so that the doctors are treating the whole person and not just the symptoms. This idea of being an advocate is to see something through from start to finish. Jesus is our advocate. See, look, angels cannot identify with us in our weakness and in our needs. Angels can't identify with us. And that's, you know, I I appreciate people who feel like angels are looking out for us. That's nice, but that's not biblical. Because angels can't come to our aid. Angels can't look out for our needs. While Jesus was here on earth, as we sang both in the hymn of Once in Royal David's City and as we sang in Infant Holy, Infant Lowly, He knew what it was like to be made like unto his brothers. He knew what it was like to be a helpless baby, a growing child, a maturing adolescent. He knew the experiences of weariness and hunger and thirst. He knew what it was to be despised and rejected, to be lied about and falsely accused. He experienced physical suffering and death. And all this was part of his training for his heavenly ministry as high priest for us. Jesus Christ is both merciful and faithful. He is merciful toward people and faithful toward God. He can never fail in His priestly ministries as He is at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty in heaven. Even now, He made the necessary sacrifice for our sins on the cross so that we might be reconciled to God. He did not need to make a sacrifice for himself because he's sinless. But what happens when we're tempted to sin? What happens, as we talked about earlier in worship, when we forget the gospel? When we forget that we're hopeless and helpless apart from a seeking and saving Savior? He stands ready to help us. He was tempted when he was on earth, but no temptation ever conquered him. Because he, was, because he has defeated every enemy, he is able to give us the grace that we need to overcome temptation. If you look at verse 18 here in Hebrews 2, every translation that I read translated the word help the same way. He is able to help Those who are being tempted. And this is one of those places where the English language does the original language a huge injustice. In this context, the word help 
actually literally means to run to the cry of a child. To run, it's a combination of two Greek words, and it means to run to the cry of a child. It means, it means to bring help when help is needed. Hebrews 1 tells us that angels are able to serve us, but friends, listen. Angels can't help us. Angels can't help us. Angels can't run to our aid, but Jesus can. And he does it because he became a man and suffered and died. Therefore, he knows what you're going through. He knows that when you turn on the news and see all the lawmakers going home for Christmas, that that causes anxiety. He knows that when you see the funeral of children killed in cold blood, that that causes your heart to break. He knows not because he's a far off distant God who's approximating what we're feeling. He knows because he came near and drew near to us. And because of that, he felt it too. So what does this all mean? What does it mean? Well, we've talked this morning about both the the importance and the implications of Jesus uh, becoming a man like us so that he could become an advocate for us. The incarnation is important because Jesus came as the promised seed of Abraham to redeem the entire race of Abraham. No one but a real human Jesus could save his people. And Jesus' advocacy for us is so important, friends, because it is is in that advocacy that angels can't run to the aid of Jesus' people, but Jesus does. Jesus comes to the aid of his people. Jesus assumed our flesh in order to redeem our flesh and everything else as well. He pursues his people. Let me ask you a question. How many of you have ever heard of the British author Dorothy Sayers? Anybody? Any of you read her books? Some of you have? Well, a few of us have. Fair enough. Here's an interesting thing about Dorothy Sayers. Dorothy Sayers um, was a British author who was born in uh, Oxford, England, and was the only child of the Reverend Henry Sayers. Now, in her lifetime, she won a scholarship to Somerville College in Oxford and in 1915 graduated with first-class honors in modern languages. Now, what's important about this is in that time period, women weren't widely read authors. The routine and isolation of academia was not appealing to her at all. She didn't want to go teach. She didn't want to be a tutor. And so she tried to get a job. And you know what? She struck gold in London. She got a job as a copywriter at Benson's, which was a London-based advertising firm. And while she was there, she ended up being largely responsible for a national advertising campaign for Coleman's Mustard. She held the public's interest in a food condiment. 
by telling stories about the members of an imaginary mustard club like Lord Bacon and Cookham, C-O-O-K-H-A-M, Cookham, right, good, and Lady Hearty. While she was at Benson's, though, she had a side project. She wrote a mystery novel. It was a mystery novel about a detective named Lord Peter Whimsey. And her first novel, Whose Body, was published. Whimsy was the sort of um, Sherlock Holmes-esque detective that had sort of a, uh, a way about him. He was a bachelor. He worked with his friend, Inspector Parker of Scotland Yard, to solve cases. Now, here's the interesting thing about the story. In the novels, Peter Whimsy was a bachelor. He was single. He largely just worked as a freelancer. But here's the thing. At some point, scholars, because Dorothy Sayers herself never married. Scholars think that at some point, Dorothy Sayers fell in love with her leading man, Peter Whimsey. And so about the eighth or ninth novel, a new character appears out of nowhere. A new character appears out of nowhere. A love interest, a lady in England. Do you know what her profession was in the novels? She also was a mystery writer. A brief courtship ensued, and Peter Whimsey and his lady were married. Friends, this morning, we are reminded that God wrote himself into our story. God loved his people from everlasting to everlasting. And it wasn't, as we'll talk about tomorrow night at the Christmas Eve service, it wasn't a last-ditch effort, some sort of plan B. But from everlasting to everlasting, God loved his people, sought his people in order to save his people. And so God clothed himself in flesh, the exact imprint of his perfection, and dwelt among his people. The cool thing is, is like in the Sayers novel, our story also ends in a wedding. As we celebrate Jesus' first advent, we long for his second coming. Because at his second coming, when the trump shall resound and the dead shall be raised, the wedding feast will commence. There will be a wedding. The bridegroom Christ will be united with his bride, the church, fully redeemed, fully restored, radiant and glorious. And a wedding feast will commence. God make you mighty, people of God. Let nothing you dismay. For remember... God made Christ our Savior born this Christmas day to save us all from Satan's power when we had gone astray. Oh, sing good tidings of great comfort and everlasting joy. Let's pray.
And so, Father God, remind us of these truths when we feel like all hope is lost. That you became a man like us in order that you might be an advocate for us. That your ongoing ministry, even now before the throne of grace, is yes and amen. That you have both the power to forgive and supply the spirit to sustain us as we journey on from grace to glory. Give us grace, we pray, to celebrate you this Advent season. To celebrate the mass, the festival of your coming. And to look to the sky with great expectation for when you will come again in great glory, power, and might. These things we ask through Christ our Lord. Amen.